Hi, I'm Jonathan Edwards, and I want to welcome you to the Jed Breaks Bread podcast. My goal in this podcast is to teach the truth of the Word of God and apply it to our lives that our orthopraxy might be as good as our orthodoxy. May you be blessed. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the pod. I hope that the study of God's Word has enriched your life and that you're practicing the theology that you know. We are going to be discussing the second portion today of the ordinance, the creation ordinance of marriage and procreation. And in last week's episode, we ended by discussing the the command from God to have marriage. And that was found in Genesis chapter 2. And so if you want to catch up on that, go check out last week's episode, 89. But today, we are going to be looking at how God's ideal for marriage became perverted. All right? How man in his sinfulness has perverted God's ideal for marriage. And we understand that God's ideal is spelled out very clearly in Genesis chapter 2. One man, one woman, creating an independent family because they leave their father, they leave their mother, they join together, they become one flesh. And so there is a a unique new bond that is created and an old bond that is done away with. The old bond being your attachment to your former family. God's ideal is very clear. One man, one woman for life. And that was excellent. And it worked out well for a few weeks. I happen to think that Adam and Eve didn't really live in the garden for a longer than a few weeks. I believe that because they were going to be obedient to the command of God to be fruitful and multiply, the fact that they did not conceive a child until after the curse lends me to conclude, or it leads me to conclude, that they probably were only in the garden for a couple weeks, not long enough to actually conceive a child. So, God's ideal lasted for a very short amount of time. And because of the curse of sin that affected all of creation and affected all of Adam's race, we now have to deal with various perversions of God's ideal. And I want to discuss those with you right now. And I want you to understand that these are not what God intended, but they are endorsed by sinful men. Not what God intended, but endorsed by sinful men. So before we actually get into talking about all of these different perversions, I I do want to make a quick note and say that if you're listening to this with your kids, I'm going to be talking very frankly about um, physical relationships between men and women. And so you might want to uh, pause this episode, pick it up later. Uh, This may not be the episode that you want to play in the car while the family is driving to the grocery store. So just bear that in mind. Nothing is going to be graphic, but if you haven't had certain conversations with your children yet, I don't want you to have to be put in an awkward situation by listening to this episode and then having to explain things that your children heard uh, when you're not ready to explain them. So with that warning established, we're going to proceed. 
Let's start with the first perversion of God's ideal. The first perversion of God's ideal is, is that of having one or more sexual partners outside of marriage. So you're not married and you have one or more sexual partners outside of marriage. That's called fornication. Now, fornication is different than adultery because fornication presumes or requires that both of the individuals who are committing the sexual act are unmarried, okay? This is a perversion of God's ideal because it creates a one flesh relationship without any commitment of the two individuals to one another. Sexual intimacy is that unique intimacy that God has established that does cause two people to become one flesh. So you can have lots of conversations, you can be emotionally attracted to somebody, spiritually attracted to somebody, um, you can have a deep connection, but that or those things in and of themselves don't create that special, unique intimacy, that one fleshness that sexual relationships create. And that's why sexual sin is so serious. I don't want to say it's greater than other sins because all sins are serious, but sexual sin, as Paul points out in Romans chapter 6, is a sin against your own body. It's a sin against your own temple. And when you don't take care of your temple or when you treat your temple improperly, that has long-lasting repercussions. So fornication is this first perversion of God's ideal. And to be um, very plain and honest, fornication is something that we don't even consider as a sin in our society anymore. We just assume that teenagers, when they reach puberty, are going to begin having sexual relationships with one another. And you can't stop it. You shouldn't stop it. So let's try to do whatever we can to make them have what we call safe sex so that they can avoid the repercussions of sexual sin. Obviously, the repercussions of sexual sin, there are, are sexually transmitted diseases. I don't even think they use that terminology anymore, but that's what we used to call them when I was in school. Um, there's also pregnancy. That is a repercussion. It's a, great it's a great repercussion in some regards, but you know, if you're unwed and you're 16 or 17 years old or maybe even younger and you get pregnant, well, that really changes your life. So our society has done everything they can to encourage fornication and to try to minimize the consequences of fornication. So they minimize and they take away the deterrence that would prevent people from having sexual relationships outside of marriage. And, you know, those physical consequences are serious, but really the, the more serious thing is the emotional and spiritual consequences that come with having a multitude of sexual partners. Sex becomes a, a mere transaction. It's not special. It's not something that um, is sacred. It becomes something that's plain and obvious and like casual. And 
people begin living their lives to achieve their highest sexual fulfillment that they can. And all that they do in life is geared toward how can I please my, my, my sexual drive. And that's really a very shallow way to live. And the reality is, over time, your sexual drive changes. Your sexual desires change. And if your entire identity is built around satisfying your, sexual, your sexuality, and that changes, that's devastating for a lot of people. So fornication is having one or more sexual partners outside of marriage, and that is a perversion of God's ideal. Let's now move to the second perversion of God's ideal, which is adultery. Now, adultery is having a sexual partner who is not your marriage partner. Adultery presumes that one of the individuals who is having a sexual relationship is married to somebody else. So we think of adultery in terms of a husband cheating on his wife or a wife cheating on her husband. And that is a serious perversion of God's ideal because in God's providence, in God's wisdom, he has said that your sexual fulfillment should come from the person that you are married to, not from any outside sources. So getting married is a license to have as much sex as you want, but only with the person you are married to. It's not as much sex as you want. Well, now that I'm married, I have this uh, card that allows me, or I have this status that allows me to go out and enjoy or satisfy my sexual desires outside of the context of marriage. No, you are to do that and enjoy sexual relationship within the bounds of your marriage. Adultery, again, is a perversion because it breaks the one flesh relationship. It introduces a third person into the one flesh relationship. And I might add a subcategory of adultery is, is this. If a husband and wife want to be creative, let's say they want to be creative because that's what the world calls it, and introduce a third partner into their sexual relationship and they agree on it, that doesn't make it right either. Because if the husband and wife introduce a third person into that union, they have violated the one flesh mandate. The one flesh is one man and one woman coming together as one. Anything more than that is a perversion of God's ideal. And so even if a couple, a married couple, wants to introduce a third person into their sexual relationship and they agree to do it, that is a perversion of God's ideal. That is adultery. Even though they've agreed to do it, it's adultery. All right, and that leads us really to now the third perversion of God's ideal, and that would be polygamy, okay? Polygamy is having three or more individuals together in a marriage covenant. Now, this varies from the, the last example of a husband and wife inviting a third person to join them. Polygamy is different because each person who is added to the relationship is added as a marriage partner. So we're saying this is a legitimate form of marriage for there to be one 
husband, and multiple wives. That's typically how polygamy is practiced. It's typically not one wife with multiple husbands. It's typically one husband with multiple wives. In the Bible, this is called multiplying wives. And it is prohibited in the law. And the reason that it is prohibited in the law is that God has said, and he knows human nature because he created us, God has said that if a man multiplies wives, his attention will be divided and he will begin to serve the interests of his wives instead of the interests of God. Typically, multiplying wives, or you are only going to multiply wives if you are wealthy or a a politician of some sort. And I'm going to use the word politician. That's our lingo. You would have been a king or a prince or something of that nature in the Old Testament system. And so if a king who was wealthy and powerful multiplied wives, that would be a way that his heart would be drawn away from the Lord and he would lead Israel astray. Now, acknowledging that polygamy is not God's ideal and confessing that it is problematic becomes very difficult for us to reconcile some of our Old Testament heroes, such as Abraham, who did have multiple wives, and King David, who did have multiple wives, and King Solomon, who had 300 wives and 700 concubines. How do we reconcile what God allowed in the Old Testament with this ideal that is established right in the beginning of the writings of Moses in Genesis chapter 1 and 2? How do we reconcile that? Well, one thing that we can say is that God permits sin, but he doesn't endorse sin. He permits sin, but he doesn't endorse sin. This means that God didn't step in and stop Abraham from multiplying wives. God did not step in and stop David from multiplying wives. Those men knew God's law. They knew what God expected, and yet they chose to disobey anyhow. I would say God permitted it because of their weakness. He condescended to their weakness, the weakness of their culture, the weakness of uh, their position, There may be other things. We don't exactly understand fully the mind of God and why he permits certain things, but we do see that God did not allow those activities that violated his ideal to go unpunished. Abraham, when he listened to the voice of his wife, Sarah, and introduced Hagar into the marriage relationship, that caused a great amount of conflict between um, Sarah and Hagar, and the child that was born, Ishmael, is the father of all the Arab peoples in the world, and there is a great conflict to this day between the Arab peoples and Abraham's offspring, the Jews. That is a conflict that has gone on for literally thousands of years. And so you see the devastating effects and consequences of sin because Abraham listened to the voice of his wife and changed God's ideal. He altered God's ideal. David, all right, David had a terrible home life. 
especially after his sin with Bathsheba. But even before that, his home life was not exactly what we would consider to be a model home life. Yes, David was a man after God's own heart. Yes, David was a faithful and just king. Yes, David had lots of admirable qualities and he was an excellent man of God and God used him to be the man who would uh, ultimately have the lineage that would lead to Christ. And so it's not like David is a slacker or a loser or anything like that, but David's home life was definitely not the home life that you would want to imitate. And I believe that's partially the natural consequences of him having multiple wives and multiple children with different wives and the rivalries that result from that type of situation. So polygamy is a serious perversion of God's ideal, and we cannot look to the Old Testament to justify that activity. Even though God permitted it in the Old Testament, I think when you come to the New Testament, you see that the New Testament authors and Jesus himself really clamps down on what the appropriate marriage relationship should look like. And if you want to do some study on that, uh, some further study on that. You just go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul talks about each man having his own wife and each wife having her own husband. That is a, uh, that is a, a signal or a, a way of communicating and saying it's only one. You only get one husband. You only get one wife. You don't get multiple wives and you don't get to have sexual encounters and relationships outside of the one flesh relationship that God established when the two of you were married together. All right, so that's the third perversion of God's ideal, polygamy. Let's go ahead and take a look at the fourth perversion of God's ideal. And I would say this fourth perversion of God's ideal that we are about to discuss is the, is the perversion that Satan is pushing hardest on at the moment. It is a perversion that many sad to say, so-called Christians are caving in on at the moment. This is the perversion where the real battle and the real battleground is taking place. And the fourth perversion of God's ideal is that same-sex couples can have God-honoring and God-affirmed monogamous relationships. Let me, let me state this clearly. That same-sex couples can have monogamous relationships just like heterosexual couples. And it is okay and endorsed by God. So one of the major forms of attack that has been going on right now in our culture is that Christians in particular <clears throat> are saying, well, it's wrong, homosexuality is wrong if it's practiced like we practice fornication. So we, fornication is bad, and likewise, fornication amongst homosexuals is bad. But if homosexuals want to become married and live together and have a monogamous sexual relationship, that is okay because it falls within the bounds of what God established in Genesis chapter 2. 
And so these Christians who are making this argument, and I don't know if they're Christians or not. I'm not going to get into that right now. The Lord knows whether they're Christians or not. But these are people who are using the Bible to make this argument. And what they are saying is that in Genesis chapter 2, what God was really establishing as the ideal relationship for two people, okay, two people, is a lifelong monogamous commitment with sexual fidelity to the person that you are married to. So they would say, yes, there is a creation ordinance of marriage. But the creation ordinance of marriage doesn't include gender and it doesn't include um, necessarily different uh, sexes being married together. It includes the idea or it is limited to the idea of two people who make a covenant relationship with one another and then will maintain sexual fidelity to one another. That is the argument that is being made by some Christians and even some non-Christians, and they're using the Bible, and they're trying to pervert what God said. Now, how are we going to answer these people? I mean, we're looking at the creation ordinance of marriage and procreation, and we're saying it's between one man and one woman for life. And they're looking at the, the commands in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, and they're saying, no, 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 it, this is a, a principle it's, a, it's broader than you guys have made it. You have made it too narrow that it's one man and one woman. They're saying it's any two people who love one another and want to enjoy or commit to some type of sexual uh, fidelity within a covenant relationship. Here's the answer to that. The answer to that is that Jesus very clearly defined what marriage could be. And I want to take you to Matthew chapter 19 because Jesus was questioned about marriage and divorce. And in Matthew chapter 19, he makes some remarkable statements. He says this to the Pharisees. When they ask him this question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Jesus replies by defining exactly what marriage is. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 4, he says this, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So Jesus doesn't actually answer the question of, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason or not? He does get to that in verse 9 of this chapter. But he begins by framing the argument according to God's original ideal intention. And he would know. He was there at the beginning. He created. What was his definition of God's original ideal for marriage? He made them male and female, and a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. You see, our friends who say they are Christians, okay, I'm not going to call them my enemies, they're friends, okay, they say that 
the covenant relationship is about two people who love each other irrespective of gender. But Jesus says the covenant relationship has everything to do with gender. It's a male and a female who join together and become one flesh. And part of the reason why it has to be a male and female is to fulfill the other half of the creation uh, ordinance of marriage, which is procreation. Procreation is an essential part of marriage. It is an expected part of marriage. Now, we understand that due to the curse of sin, some people are not able to procreate. We understand that, you know, there are things that happen that prevent husbands and wives from having children. We're not talking about that at all. Those are all exceptions. What we are talking about, what we are um, affirming is that marriage between a man and a woman results in children. That is God's original ideal. And if you leave one of those pieces out, you don't actually have the ordinance of marriage and procreation. Sure, two men can make a covenant with one another. Two women can make a covenant with one another. They can commit to sexual fidelity with one another. But that is not marriage according to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Because marriage involves the ability and the responsibility to procreate. And two men cannot procreate. And two women cannot procreate together. And adoption is not a workaround for this original command. There was nobody to adopt. Adam and Eve were all alone. They were the only two beings. And so in order to have offspring, they had to come together in a one flesh relationship and their biology that God designed would work in conjunction with one another to produce a child. And then they were responsible to care for that child, to nurture that child, to help that child grow. And that was God's ideal. That continues to be God's ideal. Well, what do we conclude? We conclude this, that anyone who is using the Bible to tell you that the monogamous relationships of same-sex couples is endorsed by God is not being honest with the text. They are short-circuiting the text of Scripture. There are three elements to the ordinance of marriage. It is a husband, a wife, and procreation. And if you cut any one of those elements out, you don't have marriage. You don't have the ordinance of marriage. My friends, this is a spot that Satan is attacking strongly right now. And I plead with you, don't give into it. Don't buy into those arguments. Make sure that when somebody uses the Bible, they are dealing with every element that's present in the text. If they gloss over some element of the text and it's important to leave that out to make their argument, their argument is not biblical. Be strong. Stand firm. These are the perversions of God's ideal. Fornication, adultery, polygamy, and same-sex monogamous relationships. Those are perversions of God's ideal. And my friends, we cannot tolerate them or endorse them because God does not tolerate them and endorse them. And if you want to 
live in a way that is honoring to God, you will not only hold to these things from an intellectual, theological perspective, but you will practice the ideal in your life and you will reject all of the perversions. And you will speak against the perversions as you have opportunity. It's not enough to just say, well, let them do whatever they want to do. No, we have to stand firm and speak the truth against perversions of God's ideal. You don't have to be obnoxious about it. You don't have to beat somebody over the head with the Bible, but you need to stand firm on the Word of God. I don't think the right tactic is the tactic that some so-called Christians have used by um, holding signs that say, you know, fags are going to hell. That's not the tactic that you want to use to communicate this truth. That's not winsome. And you know, one thing that you find when you read the New Testament, it says a lot of hard things. It's very convicting, but it's always winsome. It's always winsome. And that's how we need to be when we share these truths with other people. All right, my friends, my time is up for today. Thank you for listening. If you have any feedback, go ahead, hit me up on the email or through Facebook. Thanks so much for your time and attention. May God bless you as you seek to practice the truth.